is Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we're in the enemy camp. At least we think we are. We read bits of Georges Sorel's Reflections on Violence from 1908. And yes, that's what the Internationale sounds like backwards. I think Reddit said that we're like Chapo, but more communist and less funny. <laughs> that, I'm 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 fine with that. Yeah, I'm yeah. very happy because like Chapo being funny typically means rape jokes and shit. So that's yeah, not true. Like, I, you got to be a little more fair than that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That sounds sounds like a tagline to me. Like Chapo, just more communist and less funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah we could use that. Okay, uh, I'm gonna start over. Here we go. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa. Joining me tonight is Grant. Hey, Grant here from Emancipation. Rosa. Uh, Rosa from Emancipation. Yeah, that's what we're going with tonight. Donald. Hey, it's Donald, also from the Communist League of Tampa. And Lexi. This is Lexi of Emancipation, Violence and Lighted. <laughs> All right, so tonight... Right. We're, t- we're talking about Sorel. Motherfucking Sorel. Yeah. This guy drives me nuts. I'm se- I'm serious. Like, not to be confused with Georges Morel, who was a French rower who was in the Olympics in the 70s. Okay. Okay. The, Wait. Got, got that's not who we were supposed to read. No. Viva Morel. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> no, we're reading Sorel. And um, we took a look at uh, Reflections on Violence, his most famous work which is uh, kind of where he develops this whole theory of the mythology of the general strike. and whew. Yeah, I didn't read all that. He also develops the theory of the virgin bourgeoisie and the Chad proletariat. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um, I don't know. Let's, I guess we can kind of talk about who Sorel was. What's interesting was that he started out as a monarchist in reaction to the Third Republic of France because, you know, after the Paris Commune was crushed, you had the Third Republic. And the Third Republic was, you know, kind of trying to look back to the, the French Revolution, even though they still made, like, concessions to the aristocracy. And so Sorel kind of at first was all like, yeah, fuck, you know, the Republic, you know, fuck democracy. I'm a monarchist. But then with the growth of the syndicalist movement kind of changes his views, and he becomes interested in the workers' movement as a force against democracy. <laughs> In a way, this is a, a kind of a repeat of LaSalle, who thought that um, the Workers' Party could uh, unite with the dying aristocracy against the bourgeoisie. And Sorel kind of has this—he has this idea of, of societies going into decadence, and the proletariat is this morally pure class that will save civilization. You know, so he's kind of Spangler-esque in that regard. So he sees, like, the decline of the West, and there's this, like, moral decline. Yeah, but it's a very specific kind of—it's actually pretty interesting kind of uh, flip of Nietzschean ethics, where instead of the um, the proletariat, you know, or, or, like, the lower on the totem the slave pole, morality bringing slave morality, right, 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 the slave morality. It's like, well, slave morality is for, is for the bourgeoisie, basically. Yeah. The bourgeoisie is this, yeah. you know, this, like, effeminate— for, you know, like a decadent uh, grouping that, you know, will value constitutional law over principle or whatever and will yeah. o- always sell you out, but then like allow violence to happen when it structures society. But when it comes to, you know, really pushing for what you need, they're just limp wristedly, you know, fancy themselves and, and get swept away. Uh, I've got a yeah. great quote from Reflections on Violence uh, from page 71. Uh, the two methods favored by official socialism presuppose the same historical datum, the ideology of a timorous humanitarian bourgeoisie professing to have freed its thought from the conditions of existence is grafted on the degeneration of the capitalist economy. The race of bold captains who made the greatness of modern industry 
disappears to make way for an ultra-civilized aristocracy that demands to be left in peace. This degeneration fills our parliamentary socialists with joy. Their role would vanish if they were confronted with a bourgeoisie which was energetically engaged on the paths of economic progress, which regarded timidity with shame and which was proud in looking after its class interests. In the presence of a bourgeoisie which has become almost as stupid as the nobility of the 18th century, their power is enormous. If the degradation of the upper middle class is, continues to progress at the pace it has taken in the last few years, our official socialists may reasonably hope to reach their goal of their dreams and sleep in sumptuous mansions. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then the solution is proletarian violence. He frequently yeah. like compares this stuff to um, efforts from like antiquity where barbarian races would conquer conquer uh, civilized peoples and then eventually you know sort of decline and become civilized themselves and lose yes their exactly the total spangler like cyclical you know history vision yeah. of history where you have an empire reaches its ascendance and then after its ascendance it starts to decline and then you know it's the barbarians invade and then they become the new civilization and then that declines and so isn't there like some like right-wing meme where it's like like hard times make strong men strong yeah, exactly men make what good I'm men of. Good yeah. times make this, weak men, you know. Yeah, weak yeah it's men make uh, bad times, you know. I, I, when I Google it, I got Stefan Molyneux, the the intellectual. <clears throat> Hard times make strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. Where do we so, get hard is, men out of this? Literally, like it's like Spangler's vision of history. Yeah, like summed up. That's like that's it. like Mac from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia's vision but of history. We just gotta show people how hard we are. But basically, what he's as, saying though is he sees the the parliamentary socialist as making the proletariat weak, and like dissuading them from like pursuing the the true violence that makes them the ethical like class that will bring bear of new values, basically. And yeah. another thing I found interesting is that he is one of those people who tries to read Marx against Engels. And he says that, like, the whole rationalist, scientific socialism part of Marxism is really the reason why the parliamentary socialists are so um, weak or whatever. And Marx was a true, like, theorist of class struggle and vitalism. For, and first Engels of all, I hate that, that shit. Yeah, I hate I that shit. That and also, it's weird because if he, you know, if he, if he's a little anti-Semitic, you think he'd go the other way. <laughs> he is anti. He is an anti-Semite. He doesn't rant about the Jews that much, but he does. He's like, he's like French. Jews. He's like French anti-Semite. Well, the thing is, like this was, the, you know, he comes out of the Dreyfus affair, where he was very sympathetic to Dreyfus at first, but then first. he later comes on to see that the Dreyfus affair got the proletariat to side with the Republican bourgeoisie, thus um, basically, sorry to use gender language, but to effeminate the proletariat, to make it less, you know, vitalistic. Yeah. It's well, that is how he views it. He does he does view it as an effeminacy, whether we yeah. agree with like, He kind of reminds I mean, me he's of not, He's not the only one to use that kind of gender no, language. No, no, no. So I mean, it, it, makes, it makes sense considering the stereotype of Jews being sort of effeminate intellectuals and artists and bankers, you know, they're always weak. There's like all these intellectuals as corrupting the proletariat. He also really likes Americans. He yeah, he has this loves... weird like fetishization of like the front pioneer frontier spirit of America and like their capitalists haven't gone soft and Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He... Thing is Sorel likes capitalist economics. He actually believes in private property and stuff like that. But he thinks that the capitalist class have lost their edge, you know, unlike in America, I guess. But, like, he thinks that, you know, they're too soft. And now the proletariat needs to kind of, like, sap energy back into capitalism through their violence, which is interesting because it kind of precedes um, fascist corporatist economics because he was for syndicates and working together with industries. And so he kind of has, like, a corporatist idea of how to yeah, but but he also explicitly hates corporatism. He hates the uh, – which is – this is actually something kind of Marxian where it's like, no, we don't want to just be part of arranging the new system and, like, have justice within our realm. We want it all. Like, corporatism is an ideology of, like, management. I don't, there's um, – at least towards the beginning of this book, there's, like, a letter in which he kind of describes this as – 
being like a cooperative spirit of the proletariat that leaves a role for an bourgeois layer. He doesn't use that word, but uh, Michel's does, and he's building off of uh, Sorel. Yeah, yeah, and Michel's is um, another character. He was um, in the German Social Democratic Party for a while, and then he kind of entered this syndicalist circle that Sorel was part of, and he ends up becoming a fascist as well and kind of creating this idea that elites inherently develop in mass organizations. And so he uses this to kind of embrace this anarchistic syndicalism against social democracy. But then he realized, hey, well, if elites are, you know, guaranteed to happen no matter what, why don't we just, you know, why not make elites a good thing and have fascism? <laughs> and so he was kind of part of this whole circle of um, revisionist syndicalists. Right wing respect. syndicalism from from there to Le Corbusier, you know, it's it's been yeah. an interesting historical tendency. Because everyone knows about um, Bernstein and that wing of revisionism and social democracy, but there was another wing of revisionism at this time that was rather than reformist and gradualist was about trying to get rid of all of the um, parliamentarists, you know muck of marxism and just make it all about pure direct action you know and this is what sorel is part of that's the kind of revisionist sorel is but he well, ends what, up going in a far right direction but wasn't he sympathetic to bernstein yes he was sympathetic to bernstein because bernstein was willing to criticize marx right, criticize right, right. Marxism. well and he also but, he also he was sympathetic to a lot we would be surprised by from our you know descriptions here he was sympathetic to the bolsheviks Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He he, he loves Lenin. Lenin. He, he loves Lenin. He predicts yeah, um, the rise of the Lenin cult. Like he says that the new state that comes out of Russia will create the cult of um, a myth. You know, a myth about Lenin to structure their society. And he even talks about Lenin as being able to wield the myth of the mass strike. Because so what exactly? On, yeah. Sorry. Because honest, honestly, like Lenin and the all power to the Soviets thing, and like. That whole early phase of the revolution, like considering the way that Lenin turns on, you know, democratic forms or whatever, like they're they're not just democratic, but participatory. Yeah, whatever you want to call that. There is something that strikes me in retrospect now that I'm like thinking about all this kind of chewing on it for myself. There is something that strikes me as slightly opportunistic about it, regardless of what was intended. I mean, and I I do. I do. And. Donald saw me doing this earlier this week, I think. Uh, I do defend the sincerity of Lenin's so-called libertarian propositions. You know, uh, libertarian socialism wasn't a thing at the time, but people say, you know, Lenin wrote this or that to like trick the libertarian socialists into joining or whatever. But I, I don't know. It, it's, it seems hard to believe Lenin made up April theses and state and revolution and all of that insincerely. It's it's more a consequence of history and politics, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, exactly. That is how I, I see it, but, you know. That's a hard... I mean, this is a cop topic for a whole other episode, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> but, but I think I think we should... No, but it's about the myth. A bit it's about where, the fucking myth. It is about Sorrell the myth. I mean, but let's talk about how Sorel comes to this idea of the myth in the first place, because he sees the scientific aspect of Marxism... That is, he sees Kotsky as kind of representing it as this idea that capitalism creates the conditions for socialism, and then the proletariat, through its, um, you know, will gradually build its political power till it takes power. And so Sorel sees this kind of scientific, positivistic strain of Marxism as like the weakness of social democracy and a bourgeois ideology interfering with the proletariat. And he says well, people are inspired. Also- Sorry, go on. I was going to say, he basically says people aren't going to be inspired to take power. Proletarians aren't going to go on a general strike or, you know, go on mass strikes because of the theory of surplus value. They're going right. to, it's going to be a myth, some kind of ethical, greater, something that transcends um, the, the concrete, basically, some kind of something that's mythical, you know, that well, is going to inspire the some, proletarian his, action. You might say something like uh, historical. Like before, but before any of this happens, imminence. Yeah, before any of this happens, though, he he like he gets down on science. He starts going to fucking Bergson lectures and starts soaking (laughs) up that guy's epistemology, and that really, I think, underpins a lot of the way he's looking at shit here. Yeah, exactly. I I feel like rationalist. Rather than read this, I I feel like I need to read Bergson before I read this. Well, on where he's coming from. 
Henri Bergson's metaphysics is actually very – it seems to me to be an articulation of something people always talk about in uh, in dialectics. Like it's like um, – I think, I think Bergson is responsible for the metaphor that's like if you take a picture of something, you're not representing it in, in its fullness. And But if I'm not mistaken, Bergson was of the opinion, unlike a lot of dialectical materialists, that there was no real way to get that snapshot uh, in a – like when you – transmit something kind of symbolically i'm really butchering bergson but i think i understand why a fascist would take that to a place of like well if you can't really get like a grasp of the full image there then you know it kind of leads to this sort of uh anti-realism you might say or i hesitate to say subjectivism but you know i, mean. I don't know if he's is he anti-realist because i almost feel like he he thinks science uh, is it's not realistic enough in a certain sense. Yeah, sure, sure. Anti-scientific realism, whatever. Well, yeah, he basically – it's like you know, a lot of it's just, are you science people think you got shit so figured out? Well, you don't know shit. You know, it, it's – you know, like it's <laughs> – There is an extent to which it's just that. Science is a liar sometimes. Oh, boy. This is Aristotle. Thought to be the smartest man on the planet. He believed that the Earth was the center of the universe, and everybody believed him because he was so smart. Until another smartest guy came around, Galileo, and he disproved that theory, making Aristotle and everybody else on Earth look like a bitch. Of course, Galileo then thought comets were an optical illusion, and there's no way that the moon could cause the ocean's tides. Everybody believed that because he was so smart. He was also wrong, making him and everyone else on Earth look like a bitch again. And then, best of all, Sir Isaac Newton gets born and blows everybody's nips off with his big brains. Of course, he also thought he could turn metal into gold and died eating mercury, making him yet another stupid bitch. Are you seeing a pattern? No. Mr. Reynolds, these were all the smartest scientists on the planet. Only problem is, they kept being wrong. Sometimes. This is insane, you fool. All that science is getting in the way of the will of the ubermitch proletariat. Yeah, it's getting yeah, in the way of like my beautiful, about my beautiful mystification of reality. Like that's the problem. Because let's look at it. Marxism is a rationalistic way of trying to understand politics. It's trying to ground a socialist political project in reason, and to use the word, I mean, in, in science. You know, at least scientific. I guess they're trying to be as scientific as well, possible. Yeah, scientific kind of implies that they're trying to pretend to wear lab coats to the art show or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what it's, I mean? it's trying to be Marxism is trying to be as rational as possible, and Sorrell is saying no. All of his rationalism is, you know, cucking the proletariat, and really they need just a good myth. Like a good, strong myth that will get them to man up and take the to the fight. And this yeah. this is a broadly accepted idea, I would say, right? Like th yes, this idea is huge in politics. I think I think mainstream politics has absorbed these ideas of using myth to drive political. I disagree. I think actually he's getting at something that was already kind of there. Because he didn't invent the idea of yeah. a general strike. And I don't think he even invented the way that the proletariat or workers or people struggling like relate to the idea of the general strike. I think he was basically observing the way that the syndicalists thought of it and were propagandizing with it and extrapolated his thoughts on it from that. That's actually a very good point because he's kind of in this weird French political milieu where you have – People like Jean Jaurès, who are kind of like Republican socialists, who um, disagree with Kotsky on whether it's okay to be part of the bourgeois government and actually do participate in the bourgeois government. Then on the other hand, you have the CGT, who are these super rugged syndicalists who despise the parliamentary socialists and just want to do pure direct action and have the general strike. And Sorrell's looking at this and he's saying, these guys, these syndicalists are the real deal. All of these intellectuals who are trying to get workers to go vote, they're, you know, full of shit. It's the, these, like, syndicates are where the real deal is at. So it's very Bakuninist. And I mean, also, 
it was common for union organizers to like point to the general strike as kind of like the grand like horizon of their strategy. Yeah. Like all the all the workers would have to do in this country is fold up their arms and this whole place would be ours. You know. Um, yeah. yeah, the idea of the general strike isn't invented by Sorrell, but Sorrell takes it and he says this can be. He actually admits a general strike is impossible. There's never right. you're never going to get every worker unionized and get them to all go on strike. But the idea of it can inspire people to action. That's the thing that's that's so dangerous, but so interesting, and unfortunately, I think kind of anthropologically, like Sorel has like a good grasp of how of what motivates people, and yeah, and he he yeah. relates it back to like Christianity and the Reformation specifically. I remember, yeah, and um, he in the way that he prefigures the Iron Law of Oligarchy, where he he has this intense distrust for mythos in the hands of the elite. Like even even if you know people were to turn on science or whatever, as like, proto-fascist as he is, he he recognizes at least he sees a a sort of rot in in politics. But for him, official socialism equals parliamentary or institutional socialism. Like there's no distinction for him between sort of bourgeois official socialism and anybody who's touched a ballot box. Um, and so the participatory nature of syndicalism is, is this sort of magical way out, but he thinks, he thinks, but, but myths myth... are stupid in the hands of, in the hands of an elite, which is what's interesting. Like, no, 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 but myths are necessary and not every, not everyone believes in the myths. <laughs> you know, well, that's what, yeah. Myths kind of like yeah. emerge organically on their own. Right. Like that's that's like that's where that's where all these urban legends come from. You know what I mean? It's just there are these like weird ideas that get disseminated from people basically telling each other stories, um, and so yeah, you're gonna get something like the general strike just from like militants kind of be like, man, we could just get everybody to just not you know, or if we could just take this strike thing and make the whole society do it, like that would be it, man. We'd win. Yeah, it's like all ideology is a reflection of the concrete, you know, experience that we're having. It's just immediate. to be to be a little fair to to people who advocate the general strike, and uh, you know, but I I don't think everybody who advocates for a general strike believes that it's literally every single person. But well, it doesn't matter. At, you look in an event like, I'll say it. You look in an event like May '68, and whatever your criticisms of the way that was organized, the facts are that the the mass striking, I guess you could more reasonably call it, did bring the sort of advanced economy of France to a slow slowdown. Um, and that does have a sort of immediate intensification of... Uh, suddenly you've got a real social rupture out of nowhere from... From that but, but you still have a political yeah. problem that needs to be addressed. Exactly. And exactly. of I've course, got... the the and the, the the and everybody who wanted to be involved in politics there, um, the communist parties were were completely degenerate, uh, horrible. <laughs> and they the, were so bad. Yeah, they were just they were horrible patriarchal workerist, you know, class collaborationist, Moscow loyalist, you know, organizations. But I think with May 68 is it kind of shows that you can have that many people on strike but not actually accomplish anything as far as, you know, Oof. taking power, you know. And yeah, I think that – I think – Graffiti, though. Yeah, but yeah. I think what – I think Rosa Luxemburg's think, but, position on the mass strike makes a lot more sense and that the mass strike is just a weapon that the proletariat uses – and the strength of the mass strike isn't so much that it's like how revolution happens, but it kind of it kind of changes what the masses think is possible. It, it changes it's like, huge. Uh, it's spectacular. Yeah, it's exactly. Mythic. So it, it makes people feel like that they actually can be part of like a large social change, you know. So if you abstract from his thirst for violence and, you know, we think more, you know, even just well, about his, his myth, on. his myth. No, no, no. Seriously. Like the violence thing. Like, you, you know, note. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, who, who here is the thirsty for violence? I mean, Sorel. <laughs> I think Sorel is less thirsty for violence than we are. Yes. I think Sorel actually thinks that like he condemns the reign of terror in France, for example. And he says that 
uh, a true proletarian general strike would be less violent than if uh, the official socialist took power. It's, he thinks I that would say he thinks, like, yeah, he thinks that that's, he believes that in this spectacular that, like, moments of violence will be enough, you know, yeah, like, like, inspirational well, violence and then peaceful transition. I have believe in this anarchist idea of like righteous, spontaneous, like proletarian mob violence versus like, you know, that's the good kind of violence versus like top down, like revolutionary terror. That's the bad kind of violence. Right. And really, that first like, kind of violence sounds like it leads to pogroms in real life. Yes, exactly. Yeah, lynch mobs. Yeah, it seems to me like that's where all this is coming from. It's like he's opposed to the reign of terror, but he's basically hitched his political um, ideals to the wagon of something that basically ends with a bunch of rich people hanging from lampposts. And he's trying to square that circle. <laughs> yeah. That's why that's why he's so fixated on violence here, I think. Now, granted, full disclosure, I didn't read all of this, but that's the impression <laughs> that I got. I would like to like challenge the idea that he opposed the myth being used by elites to a certain degree because yeah. later in his life he he latched on to Mussolini and he latched on to Lenin and he saw them as like big authority figures who used the myths the sort of myth of the general strike properly. Well yeah, I would say I would say that this is a more anti-political text than his later work. <laughs> Reflections on violence. Yeah, but let's let's open that can of worms. We should though, because Sorrell <laughs> is anti-political in that sense of wanting to attack the bourgeois political sphere, but he and he also he's also with it, the thing the is the hatred of of uh, you know decadent capitalism, the bourgeoisie and bourgeois democracy. All forms of I, bourgeois democracy. I, just, I well, feel like this whole like what's interesting though is that he's not just anti-political though; he's also he 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 crusades against the very idea of a general will because he feels sort of an elite will always capture that idea and present themselves as representing it and so he he in yeah. a way he is and this is this is what i would call something like isis today he's anti-political huh. and anti-social yeah, I don't. I don't know about that. No, I think that the whole point of the ethics of violence and the ethics of the producers against that false universal, you know, humanist. But he thing. he hates the idea of like a common human unity itself, you know. And this well, obviously comes well, from his background in monarchist reactionary politics. Yes, but it, it's also a properly Marxian impulse to a degree, even like because we are talking about bourgeois humanism and like a lot of the times the general will is a substitute for the national will and marx is trying to assert an alternative to the rousseauian general will by appealing to the proletariat and so the the, the problem with sorel is that he's like a really good marxian thinker to a degree except he hates science like most of like most marxists in the 21st century <laughs> Well, I think and, he's a he's a creative Marxist thinker. He, that's what he starts out as. He started as as like I want to be like. He's influenced by Antonio Labriola, who was an Italian socialist who died in the late um, 19th century, who influenced Lenin and Bordiga and Gramsci, who kind of tried to bring the dialectics and the power of ideas back into Marxism. But eventually, and Sorel kind of started out influenced by him and trying to make a more, you know, a, a more nuanced and powerful marxism but he's clearly an educated man like yeah he, he reads like he and like his comments on pessimism are something that i've always are always echoing in my head whenever i read old ass ancient texts and when you read old ass ancient texts you see a lot of the same social and political problems that you see today and it's like oh what why would i ever think that these could go away so you have that thought that seems kind of conservative in a general historical materialist fashion, you might have a theory of society where you don't actually get books until you get a certain kind of like divided society. And so, of course, all the books that you can read in history are like that. But it takes a while to even like formulate an alternate theory to that. And when he goes after what he sees as the pessimism in Marx and the pessimism in Marxism as being like the good part and, you know, put the science shit aside... He's like really putting his thumb on on that kind of hope of Marxism. You know what I mean? He's he's like he's right up in it. He's he's an interesting, interesting well, challenging thinker. 
there's something that Lars Lee talks about how Lenin is like, you know, people say that Lenin had this worry about workers and he didn't really believe that the workers were a revolutionary class. They had to be pushed by intellectuals. I feel like Sorrel actually does have this worry about workers because he sees how so many of the workers are joining these socialist parliamentary policies and, you know, they're kind of lining up behind what he sees as these bourgeois causes, like defending democracy. And so he thinks that the proletariat kind of needs to be pushed into a more revolutionary direction through a myth. And so that the myth is kind of like a way for the vanguard to intervene and, you know, force their ideas onto the uh, onto the masses. Sorrell doesn't believe in anybody. He He's pessimistic about the workers. He's pessimistic about the intellectuals. I mean... I think honestly, he's I think, not pessimistic about workers. I, I think he's more just extrapolating how people in use the, the idea of the general saying. strike already. I mean, I think he's definitely pessimistic about workers. He's very disappointed that they're yeah, social democrats that. and that they're voting and that they're not instead going around killing capitalists and you know overthrowing the decadent republic instead yeah, of participating but, but, in the republic. There's something hopeful about this that let's say Nick Land isn't hopeful about. Right. Where Nick Land sees the society, you know, being atomized and ripped apart necessarily and not being able to challenge whatever Terminator power comes up. Whereas Sorrel really holds the door open for the possibility that proletarian violence will actually. And I mean, this is before the Russian Revolution, right? This book. Like, yeah. So, I mean, so, I mean, it does. It does kind of actuate in a way. And honestly, the the way that we were talking about Dugan. And the way Dugan wields the Russian uh, te- like uh, history of communism as a national myth is exactly the way that Leninism, IRL, Stalinism, like expressed itself. Like that that is what held sway to the point where you can even talk to some contemporary anti-revisionists and they take on this myth as like an anti-racist tradition in the United States. You know what I mean? Like that myth is still there and that belief that kind of Kierkegaardian belief that this must overwhelm bourgeois reason. Because yeah, bourgeois- there, you know, there is the myth that Stalin would send the Red Army to the U.S. if the um, sharecroppers got attacked, for example. Right. Like, and, you know, the US, USSR did fund and, like, support some, like, anti-colonial and anti-apartheid, like, efforts. So, I mean, you know, it's, it's an understand... I don't know, like, I, I remember reading something about uh, one of the... George Jackson, who who uh, was, I think, someone who became a Panther in prison. Um, he's a brilliant guy, and he's arguing with his like, I, I don't know, in the in the prison in, in the classroom. He's arguing against everyone else in the prison about Mao Zedong and how you know, like, just really going deep on the myth of Mao Zedong, and it, it just hurt me to read because this is like I could see the self esteem that this guy was getting from this, and that this. This, you know, this myth allowed him to, like, structure uh, resistance to all this, you know, like, being in prison. Yeah, yeah. I, I, talk, you, I know exactly you know what you're what talking mean? about. Because in the 60s, people couldn't just, like, Google Mao and read that 30 million died of famine in the Great Leap Forward. And right. so it was easy for people to kind of create this myth of Mao that kind of represented an alternative form of socialism to the dreary USSR, like a more youthful, vitalistic, energetic form of socialism. And well, so it, that's kind of yeah. they're, they're killing birds over there. <laughs> they're killing rats well, over there. It's I going mean, you great. Had the, you had the Cultural Revolution going on, and I mean, I will. There were some pretty like in, insane, like and cool, actually, things going on over there. It looks exciting from the, afar. Yeah, and so you you the myth generates out of these real life you know, situations, but then it becomes beyond what it really is, and it becomes something that transcends the rational, and it inspires people to action. And so Sorrell is interesting in that regard because he recognizes this aspect of politics, that people are not always driven by rationality in politics, and that's why the shit scares the hell out of me. Values, taboos, myths that are, in, that are imposed by the political onto society do not stick very well. They're weak, I would say. And and I think that I think that the myth of the general strike would kind of be revealed to be as flimsy under the right circumstances. 
Well, yeah. I mean, anything would be, but I mean, I think what he's... he's Not anything, like, though. I mean, things that are rooted in people's actual lives, in their communities, in their families, in their day-to-day... But if your, actual life, if your actual life consists of going on strike on a regular basis, then it yeah. actually would have some kind of efficacy. Yeah, because there were strikes in France where, like, workers literally, like, fished out of the, the bay to survive because they were on strike for, like, so long. And so they were literally, like, you know... Like there were some very epic strikes in France at this time. I, I don't disagree with that. I, I just mean to say that that there's something about the myth. I, I agree with your point about uh like political morality seeming like a put on and not authentic and not sticking with people. And well, empirically speaking, I mean we look at it and it 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 drops the second. Right. There's right, a right. social interest in dropping it. But like, but there's still mythos. Like, mythos is different than political morality. Like, a bunch of people might vote for Trump because he's a, a mythic figure of some kind. God help yeah, me. I mean, but if well, yeah, but it's the wall, the wall it matter, is Ted Cruz would but, be president. But they're not gonna like you know boycott Keurig because they think that's stupid. Well, here's the thing: like, the wall is a myth. Like the wall is not a th- no, it, no. Yes, it, that is so true. That is yeah. so true. That is a good. That's, that's such a we, good point. It's emerged out of this impulse to keep Mexicans out of our country that white people have. And it's like, well, how do we do it? Let's build a big fucking wall. And so that's just like a very intuitive thing for a lot of people. And that was the big like appeal of that very like simple concept. It's like a very yeah, simple solution to a kind of so many people who were like, what if you ask them, what would Trump have to do for you to stop liking him? And they say, if he if he doesn't build the wall, if he doesn't, you know, it's the wall that they really count, they really care about. It's yeah. fucked up as it is. Yeah. But the thing is, yeah. the wall is a mythic in a way that it's like obviously rationally, this huge wall is not going to keep immigrants out of our country. Right. But it just represents, you know, because it has, you know, that mythic aspect because it is it goes beyond reason. Yeah, exactly. Like different myths like emerge out of like material conditions like in a society, I think, and people's sort of like collective understanding of them. Like I I don't and the one the myths that have power are the ones that kind of do that organically and not the ones that are like dreamed up by like in a political Right. I feel like immigration today is like what World War One was back in, you know, but the you old know, days. Yeah, and, it, and it's, it's, it's still an internationalist issue. Position a little bit. Yeah, it's like it's like that's where you draw the line. It's like, oh yeah, we both like might want like universal health care and better wages, but like you want to throw immigrants out, and so you're you can't be a proletarian internationalist. And that's what separates us from social democrats, also like Bernie Sanders. You know, he still wants. A relatively strict immigration policy rather than open borders. The same is true of like most cap social democratic organizations. I mean, that fucker said that's that true. Open borders was a Koch brothers idea. Well, well yeah. Well, he, I mean, no, he, he actually no, has a point that from, a, from a sense though, because you know, I, I, there yeah. is a la- there is a labor market, and having more surplus labor drives down wages. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah economic. Economic autarky like requires closed borders. That's why the USSR didn't allow freedom of movement. Yeah. Like, you know what? They they built, attack, they built the wall. Maybe we should build a wall too. Funnels us right back into <laughs> civil society. Yeah, the Berlin Wall. If we if we let ourselves care about these sort of every yeah they 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 took down their wall and look what happened. Anti-fascist wall. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. I'm I'm, I'm just saying like I do because th- I I once kind of like you know when I was like a. Uh, Early in my Occupy days, like I kind of bought into the idea of like a general strike. I mean, I didn't think Occupy was going to do it. But I thought it was like no, a good no, no. idea. Of course. Well, I, I didn't believe that anything like that was possible until I saw Occupy. I'm like, oh, people still do this, huh? And I knew the history of labor a little bit, and yeah, the idea of like the general strike is is kind of like it. Can, it does contain like within it, you know. That's what like because one useful thing about myth is that it does sort of contain within it like certain compact. I don't know if the word is like phenomenological or uh, certain like ideas that can be unfolded from them. I mean, you could argue that the Civil War was basically driven by myth, like the idea of the great slave power slowly creeping into the north. That probably wasn't going to happen, but but enough people believed that it was going to happen, that it drove like many people to like support the Republican Party, even though – even though they weren't particularly enthusiastic about the Negroes. 
Yeah, Eric Foner actually makes that point in his book about um, it's like his free labor book about the ideology of the early Republican Party. How there was this almost like religious like idea about the slave power. I think yeah. that uh, the problem with myth though is that like at the end of the day, like it's it's designed for the rabble. Like it's not designed for the people right. making decisions in a rational way. And if you believe in democracy, generally, right. myth, your entire rhetorical strategy should not hinge upon myth. It should yeah. hinge to a certain extent upon, you know, essentially elevating the proletariat to be able to actually take command of society and not just follow like weird rumors and. Yes, exactly. Well, you can That's draw some away from this, though. I mean, for example, if you look at climate change, for uh, one of the biggest problems with the argument about climate change has been scientists' hesitancy to move their rhetoric in any like millimeter of a step towards mythology. So when you have somebody on CNN talking about climate change, for example. Um, they they talk about charts, they talk about statistics, they talk about empirical data, and you know what they don't mention is this power. They don't mention this very powerful idea, and it's not a hundred percent true, but it's kind of true that if we don't do something, we're all gonna fucking die. Yeah, this is the end times. They don't actually. Yeah, they I don't mean, invoke that kind of really. Necessary, I don't see it. I you don't see that? I, I mean, see, I see leftists invoke it, but I don't I see, see a lot of alarmism. I don't. There, see, there is alarmism. I don't see a lot of alarmism about climate change in the way that really? they actually get Americans to give a shit. I see what alarmism. What yeah. in some culture? No, no. Television that they're going to die if they don't do something. Otherwise, they don't. No, no. What you do is you tell them that. Well, the right could possibly do this. What you're what you do is you tell them that all these brown people are going to come from the fucking third oh, yeah, world they're, they're because they're getting flooded. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, yeah. a funny, it's a funny irony. I saw a meme about this. There's a great irony to the fact that people are encouraging anti-refugee policies and they're encouraging climate change policies at the same time. That's yeah. not a good long-term strategy. No, well, another interesting thing about some, myth, some group of scientists needs to go rogue and claim like the Illuminati is behind si climate change, and that it's like have a to say something conspiracy. stupid about it, and everybody will believe it. Yeah, it's exactly. We <laughs> <It's laughs> just have to talk more stupid about politics, and then people will like care about us. <laughs> but I, we're laughing about this, but this is really what a lot of political actors think. And the thing about Sorrell, just to go back to what Jake is saying, that is is so dangerous, is that you know. If you think that people are basically operated by myth and not by what's true at all, then maybe you know it's true, but then you Which we don't. In myth, like, well, but this is like what a lot of political actors think. This is what, honestly, a lot of Leninists truly actually believe, and that's what's so disturbing about Sorrel. Well, yeah, I think, I think like Sorrel's is, point about is people like, I mean, they think they have the proletarian science. Will. Yeah, they but, know the general will better than this, than society does. But because they have the science constructed, they have the proletarian science constructed, and so they talk about it in a different way. But it's still basically. I mean, the other person I was thinking of when reading this is Lukash. Well, Sorel influenced Lukash. Right. The perspectivism is. I think the proletariat, because they have to learn how to govern society and run society, and right. because democracy is based on this idea that if if enough if people rationally collectively make decisions we can make decisions that will benefit everyone and will you know be the best for society through reason and through collective you know work and collective decision making through democracy we can basically have a society that is you know the best possible society and Sorel is completely against this idea yeah and i mean most people when they when they think when they hear the phrase every cook can govern they think about some guy thinking that the Jews fake 9-11 to hide the fact that the earth is a flat moon landing. Or something. <laughs> and, you know, and they, and they think that there's no way Lenin actually thought every cook can govern. He must've just been saying that, to, you know, get people on board and fucking steamroll some shit. I mean, Marx and Engels thought so. And Lenin was pretty faithful to Marx and Engels. So, I mean, I do really think, though, that Marxism can't use myth in this way because it's about humans rationally taking control over their lives. 
And it's about moving beyond these bourgeois mystifications that mediate our existence. And it's about humanity right. truly taking control of its own conditions of existence. Yeah, I mean, and, and I mythology totally can't do this too, because where, it's... Where I think yeah. overestimates how how informed one has to be to be rational. I mean, every cook to, to govern, every cook needs to know kind of a cursory amount of information about the things that affect them. It's not as though every cook can govern means every cook must know nuclear physics. It's, yeah. 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 And, and, and there's even, I think, a good argument that people's minds are kind of modular. So take someone like Isaac Newton. You know, he 90% of what he wrote was like crazy ass mystical shit. And then he just had this other part of his brain that invented physics. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, yeah. To be well, honest, I think, it, um, sorry, Rosa. A, a lot of government doesn't really take that much mental effort to really understand, like, outside of like minutiae that is just like garbage, anyways. Like, like most of federal federalist ideas are kind of garbage when you look at them it's just sort of a rationalization of like just weird elitist power structure that you know kind of got like came after the american revolution and that sort of thing it's yeah just like yeah i mean marxist it does, social marxist social thought kind of breaks through the bullshit in a way it's kind of like cutting through gordian knot where it's like it's like, sure, there are these specialists that understand all of these complex things, but when you're running a society, the most important things are, you know, does everybody get health care? Does everybody, uh, you know, get what they right. need to survive, et cetera, et cetera. Like and, managing and public you're, utilities. You're not, like smarter, you're not smarter than everybody else because you can do chemical engineering necessarily. You've just learned a certain skill. And I think one of the reasons why democracy under capitalism really isn't, you know, as effective is because capitalists don't have a vested interest in the majority actually knowing how to run things and running things. Right. They want yeah. they want to keep that shit like confusing. That the whole the whole school of law, the entire profession of law is literally literally exists to be as complex as possible so that you have to go through years of schooling to make arguments, you know. Like the the way the bourgeois state has been historically developed has been to make it as complex and impenetrable as possible. And now so, that is that is true, and there's no incentives for people to make it like less com like less hard. But the the truth is is that society is pretty complex, and there is like a level of emergent complexity, and that. It, I think it probably sure, is. But, but, I, wait, hey, but wait, hey, Lexi, yes, shut Lexi, up, Lexi, shut what up. What do you man. have to know? Let me talk. Let me talk. Have to know to make good decisions. What do uh, you really have to know? I mean, I understand specialists have this sort of instrumental importance, but but do you need to know any of that shit to like? So make so the, the right second call? so the second half of my sentence was going to talk about the historical, <laughs> but you know, historical materials for all the productive forces in making like information. Lexi, I'm sorry. Add, add, Say the second half of your sentence. I'm a yeah. jackass. Go. All on. right. So the so the fourth quarter of my sentence will be like this. <laughs> no, like the um, genuinely like uh, productive forces and the way that like information at a glance and automation of like highly complex decisions like can like help people manage complex systems in a way that wouldn't yeah. be so incredibly like, still... like i don't know like when you when i think about central planning in the ussr I, I i don't really know the reality of it so i imagine a bunch of people like sweating their balls off in like a boardroom with clipboards being like shit how do you uh, like <laughs> how much is there i don't know we got a letter we got like a telegram and oh god okay 40 like, 40 million radishes put 40 million radishes over there you know like trying to do logistics with no like yeah automation yeah, we, got, we, got, we got to get these numbers right guys look this well, is god, i mean god awful i mean like bordigas types the last 12th of that sentence so thank you for interrupting <laughs> my interrupting you yeah. What I was going to say is, like, a big argument you get from Bordigas types and also right-winger types against democracy is that, well, you wouldn't democratically run a nuclear power plant, would you? But it's like, that's not what we're arguing for. Like, obviously, there are there is a technical division of labor. The point is that we want to flatten that mental and manual division of labor so more people can take part in, you know, these kinds of interesting forms of labor. Like, we don't well, want to democratically manage a nuclear power plant. And why should the people who don't plant. to run the plant? 
decide what's done with like this plant that and i mean this is a basic marxist Marxist principle that all economics is social and so you know like sure they know how to run the nuclear power plant but we built the road we built the (laughs) and we're going to be getting the energy so we should have you know versus like of course i mean we should all have a say energy energy is like a collective I mean, when we replace all those nice specialists with computers, you know, who basically cooks manage the public utilities while the supercomputers deal with like the specialist hardcore shit that really needs but, a lot of knowledge. And you can have like a few engineers who manage the comp side only in 10 years like from only now. In- all right, it's 2017. By ten years from now, CompSci will not be profitable as a profession anymore. You will be like the new call center. <laughs> yeah, well, my well every cook can govern, but it'll only be cooks. That'll be our like Amelia Bedelia <laughs> version of Kanye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, only cooks get vegan. Only people who do any re- re- if you're, re- if, you're if you're a labor. sous chef. The fuck out of here! How does sound? The fuck out of here! I actually had a funny idea that like the central government that's elected for the world socialist republic should all have to live, like they have like one year term limits, and they all have to live in like a big house together and like help each other cook and clean. They don't have yeah, to be and, served. And there has to be a reality show. There has to be a reality show. I trust Anthony Bourdain no, a, to govern. That's a that's actually like a living place, like somewhere in Silicon Valley, isn't it? Like they live in bunk beds and they can't have sex with each other. Well, isn't that like Plato, Plato's Republic? Like, there's some part about that. If you're having having a communal living situation and it's not incestuous, what's the point? Yeah, what? what, Yeah, what? What's the point? You know, the ruling class should have weird, kinky sex. It's just a natural law. I mean, the ruling, the rule before the episode. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I was saying under the dictatorship of the proletariat, you know. There's going to be orgies. I accidentally said ruling class when I meant administrators. (laughs) When the proletariat is the ruling class, you know. (laughs) Right, right. As Claire Rosetkin said, sex will just be like drinking a glass of water, completely demystified. We're having too much fun. Should we wrap up the episode? I don't know. We can talk about myths and shit. I mean, I I think we uh, covered what Sorrell's real thought is pretty well. I mean, does does anyone else have any thoughts? Um, I'm nervous when I read stuff like this. It makes yes, me like, yes. kind of like, well, if he wasn't right about so much, this wouldn't be a problem. But hmm, he's right that's about. All, yeah, here's what I'll say. Myths, myths just kind of naturally happen in society, and I don't think that's something you can really, you should really be seeking to meaningfully harness. Um, because you can't really harness it. It's just a thing that's like an epiphenomenon of people's like life activities. And it's so hard to to craft. I mean, it naturally arises so easily, but if you try to make it, it's very difficult. Yes. Like exactly. I think I think like I think you could actually ethically tap into the myth of the general strike by say if you're gonna have like a mass strike calling for a general strike. All right. So we do this series in the enemy camp where we're, we're reading fascist. Gotcha. And talking about it, you know. And so we're doing the series in the camp. We're reading right-wing authors that criticize them. So we decided to do Sorel because he's often credited as the inventor of fascism. Mussolini, I loved him. Right. You know? But the thing is, are we in the enemy camp or not in this case? Because Sorel... So fucked up. It's, it's, it's so complicated because... It's I, like I can see all of the elements of fascist ideology in his writing, but he's not quite a fascist yet. He's I think, still, I think we're in the camp. We're in the camp of a French quasi autodidactical bore. <laughs> I don't I mean, know. He's yeah, but what I'm saying is like I was, I was bored. I'll say it. I was bored. Okay, fair enough. I will. I just want to ask this question: How responsible is Sorel for fascism, and how much of fascism is really? Oh come on! I mean, I mean, if we talk about fascism, when we say the word fascism, we mean everything fascism did. We we mean all of the horrors. No, I'm, I mean Sorrell very specifically. Was, no, 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 but I I I, I understand what you mean. But but if Sorel, at the end of the day, to me, he was anti-Semitic, but he was a right syndicalist, and. and He's a nationalist. He became a nationalist. In Italy, came out of national at the times, But like, at the time of reflections on violence, he was more of a Marxist than that. 
in my opinion. And and uh, he was hanging out with Action France and Charles Maros. Yeah, you know what? Fuck him. <laughs> like he was this, he was this weird character who hung out in left wing circles and right wing circles and kind of tried to make a syncretism. Like he kind of tried to create a new revolutionary ideology that wasn't based in rationalism, it's, but based. You know, you hit it. the bong too much, and yeah, you get this. And and it's interesting as you read Mein Kampf, Hitler talks about myth as well. He has a similar yeah. kind of theory of myth, but I don't think there's any evidence Hitler ever read Sorel. So maybe that's like from Sorel to Mussolini to Hitler, but that transfer that happened. But Hitler, no, Hitler was German and just, fucking crazy. That's why he could refer yeah, to I mean, time. He might have gotten inspiration from like the uh uh germ the conservative revolutionaries like Schmidt. Well, I don't know Schmidt, no, Schmidt wouldn't count as that. As a Schmidt would count, right? Conservative th- revolution. Yeah, Sh- uh, Schmidt was Schmitt. directly. Yeah, Schmidt. Yeah, Schmidt was like. Schmidt was directly influenced by Sorel. Like he read Sorel, rather heavily. And Sorel and, was directly influenced by Proudhon, which is another thing. Like, I thought was interesting he, is how he's like trying to kind of like. He starts out trying to purify Marxism and gets to the roots of Marxism, but he ends up just going back to Proudhon. <laughs> yeah, and Nietzsche also. Like, I think the Nietzsche yeah, yeah. element is really strong. Like, Nietzsche's basically sort of his Hegel. Like, he flips him on his head. What? Yeah, he yeah. flips Nietzsche on his head. That's what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. 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 So, he, he, creates the, he creates an aristocratic slave morality and a proletarian uh, master morality. I, I think that's probably closer to the truth in some regard, but like there, there's this way that uh, I don't know, peak Christianity and Nietzsche becomes these like, uh, Mark Fisher says this in a haunting way, these like, you know, all these medieval torture devices that can be made and you, you know, these tools can be utilized for something even worse than Christianity that will make the oppressor look like the victim. Like, um, like, I really get that in contemporary, like, you know, therapeutic, neoliberal, dystopian liberalism. I really get that. Like, oh, and I, I mean, in many ways, we live in the world that Sorel even predicted. I mean, he, he predicted kind of a semi, where not a feudalist, not a semi-feudalist, but a nostalgic for feudalism corporatist reality that would come from the fusion of parliamentary socialism and conservatism. And if you look at Western Europe and you look at where we are today, it seems like Sorel had a little bit of vision. Yeah. And I mean, I think that like Sorel himself, you know, I'm not trying to say Sorel was like responsible for the horrors of fascism, but my real question was like, how much of the ideology of fascism can we find in Sorel and how much actual innovation does you know, fascist ideology need beyond them? And then there's a the question is, does fascism even have an ideology or is it just this, you know, just whatever opportunistic, like, because it's so opportunistic, it will take yeah. anything. But the idea of the myth, yeah. I think once you stop basing politics on rationality and start basing it on myth, that means that you can create this super opportunistic, all over the place counter-revolutionary politics. Like, and I mean, yeah. the myth, the myth uh, does uh, seem uh, core to that. That's very true. Well, Adorno's yeah. kind of like expanded idea of fascism. Like, you know, when he gets out of Germany and ends up in L.A. and he kind of <laughs> like has to do with uh, the political being reduced to the aesthetic in a, in a way where, I mean, you know, you're on the ground of myth at that point. Like, it's another that way of and talking Benjamin, about it. Yeah. 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 So I think we should name this this in the enemy camp question mark because I think Sorel is. I was thinking about a question mark too. Yep. Yeah, because I obviously like think he's insane and has a lot of horrible ideas, but he's not quite like you know Julius Evola level. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I. I mean, Lexi I, I, and I were I, talking about being I, fascinated while we were reading this. Yeah, I, I kind of, I honestly kind of like. Think, I think that this work is like pretty good, and I, 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 have, I have some, some, I have some trouble 
with how much I like this because honestly, yeah, he does the move with Nietzsche that I've always kind of read into Nietzsche because I knew rich people and I knew they're weird, passive aggressive, like domesticated ways. <laughs> exactly. I mean, what he well, does what, with wait, Nietzsche I wanna, is important. I want to ask Lexi, like, what do you like about this? Like, what is what is it about this that really grabs you? Because I'm not really seeing the appeal. Is it the, is it the Nietzsche thing? I mean, is that it? Uh, like. I don't know. There's something that feels anthropologically true about the myth stuff in a way that punches me in the gut. It's the stuff about um, political pessimism and the way that I don't know. And, and his, but also, his, rich his, people his, are his, pussies. I mean, I'm, he makes he makes a good point about myth, but what he wants to do with it is what's fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It is. No. It's honest, Honestly, I mean, I haven't really read Adorno yet, but honestly, I think Nietzsche, I think Sorel is actually, Sorel's reading of Nietzsche is basically a good case of why there isn't a good left-wing reading of Nietzsche. Like, like, there's, this, this is what it is, this sort of weird, violent masculinity and irrationalism that's behind like Nietzsche. against the democracy and the bourgeoisie against it democracy make, it, doesn't make good, it doesn't make for good theory like this is just very like non-systematic it's just kind of it's necessarily it's, so it's like, like a series uh, of shower thoughts i really i was not like i'm like i don't know i don't really see what the point of all this is if you, yeah. if you want if you want to storm the halls of the political sphere and like bourgeois social morality and blah 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 like this is tapping into that like thing that actually makes revolutions take popularly. Yeah, peace, land, and bread. It wasn't fucking abolish the value form that they that they said. Yeah, Bolshevik. Russia. I mean, but it's peace, land, and bread. But I think these things Did like I hate the term. Things? But I think these but, things rise organically out of the activity of the masses and their own creativity on their own, and it's not something that's introduced by. It's not totally the political. An that's something that's fundamentally human. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's not I, I this sort of weird, violent masculinity. I, I don't this... think that's a myth. Peace, land, and bread. Yeah. No, I don't think well, so either. Yeah, that's what I'm. That's rational. kind of what I'm saying. Is that I don't. I don't think it is. A, I think. I don't think it is a myth. I think it has. Let, a let, let me. Basis. Yeah. Well, let me try to get out. I, let me try to get out a slightly I, complicated thought. It's just that, like, w- there's provable empirical truth. There's total functional instrumental bullshit, and then there is this wiggle room of there's a whole part of life that you know people that only care about provable science totally dismiss, but it's like important. And when you go to a psychotherapist, you learn to build a narrative, and blah 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 blah. There's this like mythic space that people live in that it's not like necessarily like false or functional. And the problem is, in politics, everything is instrumentalized. So this important human space that's anthropologically like consistent always ends up getting colonized by someone else's interests. And there's a really problem. There's a problem. There's like a, a there's a way that ruthless instrumentalization of people can tap into this very human thing. This is why like uh, advertising gets its power because people are studying human nature and human consciousness in order to like do psychoanalysis in reverse and like push it, you know, uh, the weak spots that you don't even know you have yet. Like, I don't know. Like, it is when the mythology of the proletariat emerged a concept known as the general strike. <laughs> However, much to everyone's surprise, this concept has become turned against them by the very forces they sought to destroy. <laughs> I, All right, let's end here. Let's end here. I would consider Sorel thoroughly in the enemy camp, uh, just as like completely opposed to the values that are fundamental to Marxism, that go back to the Enlightenment. Like, basically, yeah. Sorel is everything Marx everything Marx really opposed. And it's sort of a great irony that he start that Sorel started off as posturing as a Marxist, the true Marxist, untainted by hick angleism and that sort of thing. It's just yeah. like And I think that's why one Sorrell, of the deepest ironies. Yeah, that's why Sorel freaks me out so much is because he's he's trying to be a genuine Marxist, but he ends up becoming the enemy. <laughs> He he, and also through, Mar- I mean, through an attempt at Marxism, he becomes proto-fascism. And the thing is, I, like, I really believe strongly that politics should be based in rationalism, and 
reason and democracy. And yeah. so when Sorrell is saying the exact opposite and I mean, you know, I, I, agree, I agree with that. I agree with that. And I love Cosmos and I love Carl Sagan. But a lot of people are voting with their butthole and there's nothing we can do about it. Phew, that was quite an adventure. Seriously, this one kind of scared me. Hopefully, I'm not going to turn into a fascist. Speaking of fascism, we missed a week for our celebration of our colonialist holiday with our racist relatives, and most of us probably ate some dead birds and more or less failed to kill the pilgrim in our heads. Um, whoops. Hopefully we got some decent Black Friday deals. Hey, what do you want? Don't forget to like us on Facebook, and you can talk to us on Twitter if you want. I mean, come find us. We're, we're out there. Um, iTunes reviews and SoundCloud comments are always read. Uh, thanks for those. And until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>